Welcome to the First 100 Years podcast series. Join me, Lucinda Ackland, and guests as we reveal decade by decade the history and lives of the women in the legal sector over the course of the last century. The stories of the courageous pioneers and their struggle to practice law, the incredible rise in numbers of women who are now involved in all aspects of the legal sector, and discuss the factors affecting the equality of opportunity and advancement to the top of the profession. First 100 Years is a unique project set up to celebrate the history of women in law and inspire and promote opportunities for future generations. We'd like to thank Goldman Sachs and Linklaters who have generously supported this podcast series. In the first episode, we heard how the professional organisations who acted as gatekeepers had refused women's applications to join the legal profession. It took the passing of the Sex Disqualification Removal Act in 1919 to make it possible for women to become solicitors, barristers, jurors and magistrates and join the higher ranks of the civil service. In this programme, we're looking at the decade of the 1930s. This was a time of huge instability due to the global economic downturn, unemployment and growing political storm clouds across Europe. In 1931, just 0.7% of solicitors with practising certificates and 2.7% of barristers were women. The law reports from 1938 do not record the appearance of a single woman as counsel. However, a few women continued to make their mark on the legal profession. With me today to discuss the progress and opportunities available to women lawyers, their lives and experiences and how they navigated the inequalities and prejudices of the legal profession in the 1930s are Dr Judith Bourne, Senior Lecturer at St Mary's University, author and founder of First Women Lawyers in Great Britain and the Empire Symposia, Katie Broomfield, Postgraduate Researcher in the History Department at Royal Holloway University of London, and Elizabeth Cruikshank, Retired Solicitor and Writer on Women's Legal History. Judith Bourne, the 1919 Act allowed women to enter the legal profession but did not compel organisations or offer women the same opportunities as men. The notion of law as being a male preserve was still widely held by the legal profession. What do we know about the progress during this decade? It was very slow, but that was to be expected. A lot of those feminists who had campaigned for the vote understood that women's progress after that date was going to be much, much slower. So that was anticipated by the women's movement. But certainly women's progression in law in particular was extremely slow. Women were grudgingly allowed to enter the legal profession and they certainly weren't encouraged to stay in practice. And we can see this really well illustrated in Helena Normanton's life and also in many of her contemporaries, those other women who were called to the bar at the same time as her in 1922. On average, about 13 women qualified a year as solicitors and 13 women as barristers. And this is notable given that the pool of barristers was far smaller at this time. This slowness is a very important part of this story because it really illustrates the resistance towards women entering the public sphere, not just the legal profession, but in fact the public sphere as a whole. And it's really important that we examine the lives of women during this period because it gives us a very clear picture of what was happening in the legal profession and also in the lives of many women at this time, not just their 
professional lives, but also their personal lives. Now, you mentioned one of the pioneering barristers, Helena Normanton. She was the first woman to be admitted to any of the four inns of court. And in November 1922, she was the second woman to be called to the Bar of England and Wales. Now, significantly, she was the only woman of that 1922 cohort who managed to practice until her retirement. Given that the chances of success largely depended on how women fitted into the existing culture of male power and privilege within the legal profession, what do we know of her experience? So you're absolutely right. She was really the only woman who managed to stay in practice at the bar until retirement. Many of those women who weren't able to stay in practice at the bar did alternative professions. For example, some went into council work, some became solicitors. But Helena Normanton was really the only woman who managed to stay in practice. If we use her life as an illustration, we can see really why those other women dropped out and why, in fact, it was only somebody like Helena Normanton who managed to stay in practice. Because if you look at the treatment of her, not just by solicitors or her fellow barristers, but also by clients and judges, you can see that there was a great hostility to women remaining in practice. Women at this time, during this post-1919 to the 1930 period, threatened the profession, the whole professional idea of what it was to be a barrister. Helena Normanton herself was somebody who was from, I would suggest, I know many people disagree, but I would suggest was working class. So she threatened the legal profession, not just by her sex, but also by her class. It was a struggle for her to find anywhere to stay in chambers, so to to get a place in chambers. If you look at the number of applications she made to join sets of chambers, it was numerous. Um, And in fact, she seemed to jump from chambers to chambers. So that meant that barristers weren't accepting of women barristers. Certainly, we have accounts of many other women barristers who have problems finding a place in chambers because They were discouraged because they were told that there weren't lavatories, for example, that were available to them. Her practice floundered because she wasn't being briefed. And so presumably we take from this that, in fact, a lot of solicitors, the majority of whom were male, were unwilling to brief a woman barrister. Clients, it's unclear as to whether they were hostile towards women barristers or not. Certainly we have descriptions of her court appearances where she was standing as a doc brief where clients would just pick one of the barristers in the in the well of the court and then they would find out that in fact one of those barristers was a woman and they would they would stick to their choice they were like gamblers they would just say no no I've I've chosen so therefore I'll go ahead and I'll 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 stick with this particular barrister so certainly we, we have an indication that some clients were very willing to take on a woman barrister as their counsel. But I think we don't have a very clear indication of clients in general, whether they were willing. And certainly she wasn't brief. So presumably that wasn't just an unwillingness from solicitors, but presumably also an unwillingness of clients as well. Certainly we see a lot of opposition to Normanton in court by the comments that judges make to her, that they are very harsh, they belittle her. Judges treated women barristers differently in court. 
Helena Normanton tried to join the Western circuit and she was blackballed by them. So they refused to accept her. It was really important to be on a circuit because it was a source of extra work for barristers. It's really interesting to note that while she was clearly academically very gifted, um, in contrast to a number of her other contemporaries, she was from a modest, non-legal background. Do you think this her background had an influence on her motivation to make it her career? I think definitely. She had this experience when she was 12 years old. She went to a solicitor with her mother about a mortgage arrangement and her mother couldn't understand. And so the solicitor said, I think your daughter understands, perhaps you would explain it to your mother. And Helena Normanton did explain it very clearly to her mother. And the solicitor said, oh, you're quite the little lawyer. And so she resolved there and then that she would become a lawyer when she grew up, which is really quite a remarkable resolution because, in fact, she didn't have any role models. There weren't any women lawyers for her to aspire to. She was born in 1882 to very modest circumstances. She had a sister who was born two years after her and her parents separated, which was quite a difficult event during this period because obviously there was a lot of stigma to single parents. Her father died quite mysteriously on a tube train and so Helena Normanton's mother became a widow with these two young children and she had numerous jobs. One time she was a publican and the job that she remained in until she died was as a boarding housekeeper. But certainly Helena Normanton must have been very gifted because she excelled in all of her subjects and she went on to become a pupil teacher. In 1903, she went off to do further studies in teacher training at Edgehill and she was very involved in the suffrage movement there. At the same time also is a reading for a history degree as an external student to the University of London. In um, 1905, she takes on a position in Liverpool as a teacher, but she's still studying part-time and she also later becomes an extension lecturer. But she's very politically active for women's rights and she has held this ambition to become a barrister and clearly she's marking time by teaching. She's just waiting until the right opportunity comes. And certainly she obviously feels with the granting of the vote in 1918, that this is the time to actually make an application to an inn of court. So she does, she applies to Middle Temple to be admitted to an inn of court and of course they refuse her. But where most other women had made an application and were rejected and these other women just left it, Normanton actually goes on and she appeals against this decision. So she brings an appeal, so she is calling all of the benches at Middle Temple to a committee, to a parliament, to actually consider her case. And she has this help from Claude Schuster, who is a secretary to the Lord Chancellor, who helps her draft her application. But clearly, she is very determined in wanting to join an inn of court, in wanting to break this male bastion. You know, it was it's difficult now if you're from the wrong social class, let alone in those days, if you were from the wrong social class. And she was without doubt from the wrong class and she was the wrong sex as well. So she makes this appeal. That appeal is heard in February 1919 and she's rejected. 
And But by this stage, there's one bill that's going through Parliament, the Barrister and Solicitor's Bill, which is Lord Buckmaster's Bill, and then later, a, a few months later, the Sex Disqualification Removal Bill goes before Parliament. So Normanton's clearly watching everything that's happening. And she understands by November that, in fact, there is no way that women aren't going to be allowed to enter the profession. So, so she writes to Middle Temple and says, the sex disqualification removal bill has come through Parliament. Will you now admit me? And they say, no, we can't do anything until it becomes law. At the moment, literally the moment that the act becomes law on the 23rd of December 1919, she applies again to Middle Temple. This time, their reply is very different to the November reply because they do accept her application to join an inn of court. So she has done it. She has actually, she has really pushed the boundaries of male exclusivity. She's jumped straight in there the moment that the act has become law. I think she understands that women are now allowed to formally enter the bar, but she also understands that, in fact, there's a lot of work now to be done. In November 1922, she becomes the second woman to be called to the bar of England and Wales. Um, Ivy Williams became the first woman to be called to the bar in 1922. And in 1921, she marries her husband, Gavin Bowman Watson-Clark, who I think is really important. I think he's underestimated because his father is an MP and I'm quite sure that a lot of Helena Normanton's influence in actually pushing forward the Sex Disqualification Removal Act or certainly putting it into the ideas, the consciousness of the public is because her her father-in-law or future father-in-law is there also connecting her and pushing. He's sort of there in the background. I'm quite sure he's very, very important. Now, Helena Normanton isn't the first woman to practice as a barrister. That first goes to Monica Gay Cobb, but she is the first woman to appear in the High Court. She's the first woman to have a divorce case. And certainly she's the first woman to appear in the Old Bailey. She also, I think, does quite a strange thing that she goes off just as her legal career is starting. She goes off to America on this lecture tour. And I think presumably she does that because she needs some money. She's very high profile. So she's now taking her cause, as it were, she's she's taking it internationally. She's actually not just making links in England, but she's taking them out to America as well. And so internationally. But in 1949, along with Dame Rose Helbrin, she becomes one of the first two women to become a king's counsel. So she does get really to the highest point of a barrister's career by the time that she retires a couple of years later. She was a great campaigner for divorce, for a change in divorce law, that she would have wanted some kind of equality or ease in which people could get themselves out of unhappy relationships. She is part of the Married Women's Association. She is their president until 1952, but she falls out with them because she doesn't feel that they are radical enough. And she forms her own breakaway group called the Council of Married Women. So she's a very, very radical woman. And she dies in her 70s, age 75. And she dies really, I think, feeling that history hasn't recognised her. It hasn't recognised her effort. She was there in the background the whole time pushing for women, for women's entry to the legal profession. And she never stops. Her whole career 
And I think she understood that she was ploughing away for the next set of women to come. That was that was her whole purpose in life. There's a very fitting legacy in that um, just recently, 26th of September 2018, that there's a Chambers who've named themselves after her, Normanton Chambers, which is reflective of the recognition of her efforts. I think it's it's a wonderful recognition because certainly when she died she really believed that in fact no one had understood her or her legacy so I think she would be thrilled. In 1936 Rose Heilbrunn becomes the first woman to be awarded a scholarship at Gray's Inn so there appears to have been some progress for the next generation of women coming through the ranks but focusing on the other women called to the bar both following the act and during the 30s what do we know of their lives and achievements? So we don't know a great deal because so many of these women didn't leave any record of their either their lives or of their careers. Uh, Probably the women barristers didn't leave a record, so no autobiography or a diary because they were so fearful of being accused of self-publicity. So I think that's why we have this gap in our understanding. And certainly I think historians in the 1960s and 70s didn't understand the value of these women and so didn't interview them, which is a terrible, wasted opportunity. But we can piece together parts of the puzzle. Um, We know that Ivy Williams was the first woman to be called to the bar in 1922. It appears that she never had any intention to practice, but she went off and taught law at the Society of Oxford Home Students from 1920 until 1945. Sybil Campbell, another of Normanton's contemporaries, went on to become the first Hypendry magistrate at uh, Bow Magistrates Court. And she had an interesting career there. So arguably, she is the first woman to become a judge, albeit a stipendary magistrate. But she was really quite incredible because she just forged, again, she forged ahead. She tried to break down these myths and stereotypes about women not being up to the job. And certainly if you look at a lot of newspaper reports of her decisions that she made as a magistrate, they're really interesting because sometimes they are really harsh, her decisions. They appear to be really harsh. And one takes from that perhaps that she was overcompensating, that she didn't want to be seen as this very sympathetic woman But she had a a good career and she stayed a stipendiary magistrate. And that was really important. It was very important to have a woman in a position of authority. Theodora Llewellyn Davis was the first woman to be called at Inner Temple on the 9th of January 1920. She was a barrister. But she, after she married, she went away and she became this great campaigner against the death penalty. So she left the bar. Crystal Macmillan is an interesting woman that she did a lot of poor person's work, but she certainly, again, a bit like Helena Normanton, never had the career that one would have expected of a woman of that intelligence. But she did a lot of poor person's work. And I I assume from speaking to other academics who have been researching her life that she did that on purpose because she was there or it was for her. It was all about social justice. We don't really know anything about Elsie Wheeler. Uh, other than that she was called in 1922 and that she did practice, but she doesn't appear to have stayed in practice. So she's um, a lost woman and it would be really good if we could piece together more on her life. Monica Gakey Cobb 
was the first woman to actually hold a brief. But again, she didn't she didn't stay in practice either. Ethel Bright Ashford, she again is another very interesting woman. She was called with Helena Normanton. She did practice for a little while, but then she goes off and she becomes this local councillor for Westminster City Council. So she does continue a life very much in the public sphere, but it's not a legal job as such. So the picture we have of these women is that they do stay in the public sphere, but they don't remain actually practising in law, unlike Helena Normanton, who did manage to stay until she retired in 1951. This contrasts the the slow progress of women at the bar since the Act was passed. Um, It is notable in the face that, in fact, there does appear to have been several successful women solicitors and certainly increasing numbers of female magistrates. The reason for such a slow progress at the bar definitely wasn't their lack of talent, but but seems to be their sheer lack of opportunity to progress. Now, this seems to contrast with the situation in the United States, where the judges and the women lawyers seem to be, by comparison, earning considerable incomes and develop networks and separate female firms. So we'll come on to the issue of female-only partnerships and the double-edged sword of uh, press interest and publicity for women barristers. But on the question of female networks, Judith Bourne, and specific organisations, what was the situation like for them at the time? So there has always been this very long tradition of women's networks where women have networked together in order to advance themselves. And we've seen that really all through women's fight to become both solicitors and barristers. Mariah Gray organised this petition where she, in in the late 1800s, where she she organised a petition to Lincoln's Inn, asking Lincoln's Inn to at least educate women um, in legal knowledge, and she was rejected. But you can see from that that there were 92 women in the late 1900s who actually really really wanted to become lawyers so there is this tradition of networks if you look at someone like Eliza Orme who never became a lawyer but she was the first woman to get an LLB to actually obtain one she was great friends with John Stuart Mills with Harriet Mills with Helen Taylor Jeremy Bentham so she was very much a part of this women's movement this women's network asking for women's rights If you look at the life of someone like Bertha Cave, who made an application to become a barrister in 1903, she was also part of a network. She was connected to the Pankhurst, so to the WSPU. If you draw a map of these women, you can see that they are all connected in some way and not just connected to one another as women, but also really to the really important men. I think these forgotten men in history who were there, who were really, really campaigning for women's right to join the legal profession. So men like Lord Buckmaster, who appeared as a KC for Gwyneth Bebb, Holford Knight, who was there on the night that the Bebb case was announced, but he was also this great friend and supporter of Helena Normanton. So all of these women in the 1930s would have known each other, whether it was because they were part of these networks or whether they had been at university together in some way. Helena Normanton tries to set up in 1933 some sort of group for women, some sort of an association of women barristers. 
she had already written to other of her cohort in the 1920s, asking them if they would like a separate table when they were dining. And the other women said that they didn't want this, that they didn't want to rock the boat, that they just wanted to carry on and not upset anybody. So... In 1933, when Normanton suggested setting up an association of women barristers, she didn't have any support at all. And so that that ended. And it wasn't until 1991 when the Association of Women Barristers was founded. Elizabeth Cruikshank. First of all, there was the idea that women solicitors could give each other professional support and comfort. This was begun by several women articled clerks in 1921, who approached the Law Society to see whether they could have a room to meet each other. They called this association the 1919 Club after the 1919 Act. Many of the early women solicitors joined the Seroptimists, a charitable support organisation. Early women solicitors who were members of the Local associations were Carrie Morrison, Edith Berthen, Mary Elizabeth Pickup and Mary Sykes, who is going to be talked about later by Katie. Getting clients was also a reason for joining business women's lunch clubs. So, Elizabeth Cruikshank, that's a really interesting insight into the ways that women were exploring the opportunities available to them, not only for support themselves, but also looking for business. What do we know about the working environment for the women solicitors in the 1930s? By 1930, which was 11 years after the passing of the 1919 Act, there were only 101 women who had qualified as solicitors, 32 of those first 101 women who qualified initially were from London, where there was more opportunity and the likelihood of being from wealthy families. But by 1930, six women had qualified in Birmingham, four women had qualified in Manchester and four in Nottingham. As demographically, they seemed to have come from the middle classes or wealthy families. There were possibly only six who came from a lower social class, including Winifred Lewis in Guildford and Charlotte Teachin, whose father was a West End waiter. The reasons for this were essentially that the costs for becoming a solicitor were humongous. First of all, there was an upfront premium of three to five hundred pounds to pay, plus stamp duty of another eighty pounds and probably no salary would be paid during the period of training. This was a significant deterrent. Many women found male solicitors supportive and helpful. Fathers who were solicitors did encourage their daughters to enter the profession. Several of those, sadly, were drafted in to help their fathers, who had lost the sons that they thought would follow them in the First World War. But we're talking here about an era in which fathers, and to a lesser extent mothers, chose any career or way of life for their daughters. And Katie, you've got something to add there. 
so just in addition to what Elizabeth's just outlined, the situation of daughters taking the place of sons in their father's firms, that's what happened in Mary Sykes' case. She entered Royal Holloway College in 1914 and her time there spanned almost exactly the period of the First World War. She graduated in 1917, but her brother had been reported missing in action on the Western Front in May 1917. It had been intended that he would follow in his father's footsteps and be articled um, in their father's firm, um, Armitage, Hinchcliffe and Sykes in Huddersfield. Um, But when he died, the family decided that Mary would take Eric's place. Um, So she recalls that she left Royal Holloway College without any very clear idea of a career. But she then goes on to be one of the first women to sit the solicitor's final examination in November 1922. She's admitted as a solicitor in February 1923. And if we consider the lives and experience of some of the couple of the other women, Carrie Morrison was one of the first women to practice as a solicitor. What sort of a background did she have, Elizabeth Cruikshank? And why why do you think she wanted to pursue a career in the law? Well, Carrie Morrison was born in 1888 into a non-legal family. Her father was a metal broker and her mother had been a cook before their marriage. Carrie Morrison graduated from Girton College, Cambridge, with first-class honours in medieval and modern languages. She actually spoke five different languages, but she was not awarded a degree because she was a woman and Cambridge did not offer degrees to such strange people um, until 1948. (laughs) Like many, many other women graduates... She tried teaching when she graduated, but she hated it and decided to acquire secretarial skills in order to become a political secretary. However, as is the case with many of these early women solicitors, the First World War intervened and she was recruited to work in various governmental organisations. While she was at the military permit office, A solicitor called Alfred Baker offered her a position as a clerk when the war is over, he said. By the time that Carrie returned from Constantinople, the 1919 Act had been passed and Baker took her on as an articled clerk, training to be a solicitor without demanding a premium and actually paying her a small salary. We can only conclude that she must have been very impressive. In December 1922, Morrison, along with Mary Pickup, Mary Sykes and Maud Crofts, became the first woman in England to pass the Law Society finals exams. Morrison was the first to finish her articles and was therefore the first woman able to be admitted as a solicitor. She was admitted in December 1922 at the age of 34. The other three were all admitted in 1923. She attracted a great deal of attention for being the first woman solicitor. The Daily Telegraph in 1928 reported, at the conclusion of an undefended divorce suit, Lord Meredith, granting a decree nisi, said it was the first time in his memory that a woman petitioner under the poor person's rules had had the advantage of a lady solicitor. 
That solicitor was Miss Carrie Morrison of Mile End Road, London, who was admitted in 1922. In fact, initially she did work as a poor man's lawyer in the East End of London before setting up in partnership with another solicitor, Ambrose Appelby, as Appelby and Morrison. By the 1930s, she was well known as representing prostitutes in court and she was a solicitor for the Women and Children's Protection Society. She was also the founder member and later vice president of the 1919 Club for Women Solicitors. When she died in 1950, the 1919 Club members stood and kept a minute's silence in her memory. Another one of the first women lawyers was Maud Crofts. Like Carrie Morrison, she went to Girton College, Cambridge, and was one of the plaintiffs in the Beb Against the Law Society litigation, which led to the passing of the 1919 Act. She was also ideologically driven to join the legal profession and is quoted as saying that women can only achieve social justice if they have the right to vote and are represented by women. Can you tell a bit about her life and legal career? In many ways, her life was very different from Carrie Morrison's, even though both of them were simultaneously at Girton College and, according to Maud Croft's daughter, They were friends. She was born Maud Ingram, the daughter of a Wimbledon barrister, in 1889 and was one of his 12 children. She believed that education was the only way that women could attain equality with men. Maud spent much of the First World War engaged in social work focused on women and children and campaigning for suffrage and women's right to practice the law in furtherance of which she gained experience in a solicitor's office. In 1922, she married John Cecil Crofts, so that it was under her married name that she passed her finals examination and was admitted as a solicitor on 11th January 1923. She continued practising as a solicitor until ill health forced her to retire at the age of 66 on the basis that her husband and brother would each take two-fifths of the partnership profits while she received the remaining one-fifth in order that she could leave work every day in time to meet her two children from school. But she also found time to write the 1925 book Woman Under English Law, which made her the first female British lawyer to write a book on women's position in society. She also recorded programmes for the BBC on women and the law during the whole of the 1930s, covering legal issues for women. Her daughter, Rosemary, and her granddaughter, Mary, both became solicitors, thus creating England's first three-generational family of women solicitors. She died in 1963, aged 74, and when on her death, her son-in-law, Bill Vaughan, who was a partner in her firm, lost several of her clients, who were old Gerton friends. They told him not to take offence, but that they did not want to be advised by a male solicitor and they would seek another firm where they could have a woman. 
which is a wonderful example of reverse gender prejudice. <laughs> Indeed, thank mm. you very much. Katie Broomfield, when we look at these early women lawyers, we see they are passionate in their campaigning for reforms to suffrage and for women's position more generally. The life of Mary Sykes is a shining example of this, and not only in the law. Can you tell us more about her achievements and her notable firsts? Well, Mary's an interesting person when you talk about suffrage, because actually Mm. I haven't been able to find any evidence at all that she was involved in the suffrage campaign. And that may just be because of her age. So she was born in 1896. So at the height of the suffrage campaign, which is usually dated to about 1913, she was still at school. But definitely her life reveals that although women didn't necessarily join organised movements to campaign for the vote, she still promoted women and women's opportunities and women's achievements throughout her life. So I think I've already said that she graduated from Royal Holloway College in 1917 with a BA in English. At that time, she had no very clear idea of a career, but when her brother was um, killed in the war, she took the decision with her father that she would join his um, practice. In November um, 1922, as we've already heard, she was one of the first four women to sit the solicitor's final examination and she was admitted as a solicitor in February 1923. She continued to practice at her father's firm in Huddersfield until 1930 when she set up on her own account, which is quite interesting because, again, that tells you quite a lot about her personality. When she was at Royal Holloway College, one of her tutors wrote on her um, record that she had a very independent manner. So almost, you know, as the decade opens, she's a woman solicitor working on her own account. And in the course of her work, she takes on and trains other women to become solicitors, including the lady who starts actually as her managing clerk, who then goes on to pass um, her final examinations and qualifies as a solicitor. That's Dora Atkinson. Um, and there are other women who she trains up um, as solicitors. And this really reflects Mary's um, passion for promoting women. So it was while she was at university in London that she became a socialist by firm conviction of opinion. And in 1933, she stood for election for the Huddersfield Town Council. She was actually unsuccessful on that occasion, but she was elected in 1935. In a demonstration of her dedication to public office and the respect she commanded, in 1938, she was unanimously appointed the first woman alderman of the Huddersfield Borough Council. In another first, in 1945, she was elected the first female mayor of Huddersfield. And what's interesting there is that she appointed her 17-year-old cousin, Helen Robinson, to be mayoress. And so what Mary's doing there is a really practical thing because she's appointing this young girl as her mayoress who's then going into school and talking to her friends. And it's a really positive role model um, and a really practical way that Mary can encourage other women into not only the legal profession, but also politics, which was something that she was really passionate about. You mentioned that her membership of the Sir Optimist Society and local business women's luncheon clubs, she frequently urged women to follow her into politics. So she's a very practical, hands-on 
advocate of women's participation Absolutely. in that regard. She was a really proud member of the women's groups that existed in Huddersfield at the time. Actually didn't exist. Some of them didn't exist before uh, Mary. So we've been having a look at a few of the women, early women solicitors, and we're going to now take a look at Enid Rosser Lockett, who was a barrister. In contrast to some of the early women solicitors who had to um, campaign very hard, mount litigation to allow them to practice, there were others who came on behind them who didn't have to endure such a long and bitter struggle and sometimes had a different outlook. Can you tell us a bit about her, Katie Broomfield? So Enid Rosser was called to the bar by Lincoln's Inn in 1927. She was a member of five paper buildings and there is a clear tension in her memoirs between her and Helena Normanton. Um, she calls Helena Normanton an, an old war horse, a war horse of the old feminist days and she doesn't appreciate um, Helena Normanton's perhaps the struggle that she went through because it's not really a struggle that Enid faced. It reminds me when you say that because it seems that there sometimes there can be two views where some of the early women have had to fight so hard and so long they've been perceived as being more strident whereas there's another mm. a sort of maybe not a backlash is too strong a word that they're having to just conform to what the ideal of the male profession was and they're happy to sort of almost get on with it and do what the men do to just sort of fit in. I think that would definitely apply to Enid, that she sort of sees herself more as a professional woman. But I, I think that would apply mm. to all of mm. these women, that they see themselves as professionals first and then women second. I'm not sure that necessarily any of them would be that pleased about being involved in a project which promoted them on the basis of their sex as opposed to their... Um, capabilities. I don't know from your detailed study of her memoirs whether she actually mentions any prejudice or hardship she faced as a woman. I think she might have said that they were thought of as figures of fun. She has this really great, great quote from 1927 where she says that the outlook for women at the bar was far from rosy. Um, not only were barristers um, regarded as figures of fun dressed up in their wigs and gowns, um, but solicitors regarded them with horror. And she goes on to talk about the risk that really that a solicitor takes in instructing a barrister, any barrister, because the solicitor will um, have to listen to the client's complaints if the barrister <laughs> that they've instructed turns out not to be very good. And clearly, women were an untried quantity in the 1930s. And so to take the risk of employing a, a woman barrister, perhaps possibly against your client's wishes was quite a risky thing to do um, and actually from Enid's point of view so she's from a fairly wealthy well-off family her father dies in the 1930s and she finds that she can no longer afford to continue her, her career at the bar so while her father was supporting her all was well but after his death she just simply can't afford um, to pursue this career but another thing that I think is quite interesting particularly from my point of view. Um, so my PhD is um, looking at the success of the first women lawyers and how we measure success. And arguably Enid, who sort of steps away from the bar, we might say that she is less successful. But um, one of the things she says is that she finds the nervous strain of appearing in court overwhelming. And she just mm. finds that she's not suited to this 
career. And so when we're looking back at these women as role models, I think it's important to point out that not all of them were suited to a career at the bar or as solicitors. And I'm sure, um, well, I know that Elizabeth knows of lots of solicitors who were sort of almost dragged into their father's firms against their will. They didn't really want to do it. And so I think for women who are in that position now, it's important that we tell all of those stories. Sure. No, I, I um, quite accept that, that it's not just a sort of mm. vertical rise. And, but that reflects life in itself. Absolutely. And for men as well. There's plenty of men who yeah. it, it's not for them. And one of the notions that prevailed that they wouldn't be able to argue against male opponents or even that their presence might hinder an administration of justice by checking the fighting instincts of the chivalrous barrister the male barrister, I should say. But um, this objection was one that had been raised before the Act, but it's obviously still persisted. How did some of these women lawyers deal with this argument? This was an argument that was raised against women well before the Act was passed. So it goes sort of hand in hand with the idea of women as the fair sex and that they would use their feminine wiles to sway a male judge and jury. Because obviously we've got to remember at that time as well, before the Act is passed, that there are no female jury members. So the entire court is um, a male court and women are going to come along and um, flutter their eyelashes and the judge won't be able um, to resist. And how is a male barrister going to contend with that? But again, there is also this idea um, that men have this chivalrous code and they won't be able to battle or go into battle with a female advocate in the same way that they would against their fellow um, male advocates. Although the story that I've just told about um, Henry Dickens somewhat undermines that chivalry argument, but um, it was something that Eliza Orme dealt with and she wrote in the Law Journal on the 12th of December 1903, No undesirable results have followed the admission of women to the legal profession in America. I have met a number of American advocates of both sexes, and I have been told that any sense of strangeness has soon disappeared. I cannot believe that any man would be less vigorous in the cause of his client merely because he was opposed by a woman. The forensic attitude would be too strong, and no woman who succeeded in becoming a member of the bar would expect or wish it otherwise. And the argument that lots of the first women lawyers and solicitors and barristers make is that if they're not going to be any good, well, at least let us try and prove that for ourselves. And that's an argument that lots of their supporters make um, as well. No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we can see from these accounts in the Law Journal, the Saturday Review and the Daily Express that their views were sought and printed in a variety of publications and so that women lawyers were still a matter of great interest in the press. This proved to be a huge problem for Helena Normanton and also troubled Enid Rosser. Um, Judith, what are your thoughts about her experiences? If you look at the archives in Middle Temple of Helena Normanton's treatment for self-publicising, you can see that there's a discrepancy between how men were treated and how Helena Normanton was. And so I think her status as first woman was a negative one within the profession. So in fact, People were watching everything she did. And this wasn't just her contemporaries at the bar. This was also the press who really looked at her 
every single move. I think it was a bit like being in the paparazzi today, that she couldn't do anything without being followed or her movements questioned or having her photograph taken. And so that was really very difficult for her. And this led to repeated allegations of self-publicising. And so that was difficult. I, I do think that one has to be objective and look and ask whether, in fact, at times she wasn't a little bit reckless and that perhaps she should have been more careful about the things that she did. But I think we also have to remember that she was a woman who was already formed. She was in her 40s when she became a barrister. So probably she just wanted to live her life as she wanted to live it. She didn't actually want to censor herself. But a lot of the things that she did were called into question by the Bar Council and by her in. So, for example, after she passed her bar finals, she spoke to a member of the press. She says that she didn't realise who they were, but she, she just said that she had done it and that, in fact, she'd found it quite easy and that she had been up all night studying. She hadn't had much time to study for them because she had been editing the journal India. Now, I think for a woman who had wanted to go to the bar for so many years, she must have known that, in fact, you shouldn't speak to the press, that anything like that could have been interpreted as self-publicising. And I think there is a big discrepancy in how she was treated and how male barristers were treated. And certainly these allegations of self-publicising make her blackballed from the Western circuit. So it does affect her career. And certainly I've looked at the papers of Edith Rosser for the book that I wrote on Helena Normanton. And certainly she was absolutely terrified of self-publicising or being accused of that. And she would leave her set of chambers via the basement or she would sneak out the back door because she was absolutely terrified of having her photograph taken or being accused of anything that could affect her career. So I think Helena Normanton's legacy of being accused of self-publicising certainly affected other women who came after her. They were a lot more careful, which is possibly why we don't have many accounts of their lives. Katie Broomfield, I think you've got something to add about Enid Rosser. The difficulty here is that she has no control over the reports that are presented about her. But one of the complaints that was also made about the press attention that women barristers and solicitors suffered is that every time a woman barrister appeared in court or a woman solicitor represented her client, it was reported in the press as a miracle, you know, woman (laughs) appears in court. It's actually quite patronising. And so there was a backlash um, against that as well. We're going to turn and look at a different type of journalistic coverage, one where we can actually hear women speaking in their own voices. One of the points Katie Broomfield makes is that the barristers aren't able, through professional conduct, able to give interviews. But So it's rare to hear women giving their own accounts. But a notable source that you found, Elizabeth Cruikshank, comes from a book called Careers for Girls, published in 1936, which is interesting in itself as it's promoting a legal career for girls. But here, Carrie Morrison and Helena Normanton comment on their differing perspectives of practising law as women. What do you make of this account, Elizabeth? Carrie wrote in this book, women solicitors find that on the whole, the prejudice against women in the legal profession is greater in theory than in practice. As regards clients, 
Some women are glad to find a woman lawyer in whom to confide. Others prefer men. And as to men, it is often immaterial to them so long as the work is successfully done. Helena Normanton, on the other hand, starts off by saying, women barristers come and women barristers go, but how many remain? They marry, they go abroad, they accept positions in the civil service, they accept legal appointments, they practice for a few terms in court. In spite of all these sources of wastage or diversion from actual practice, there is still a small band of women who do work hard, continuously and seriously, at the active part of the profession. Perhaps a dozen or 18 all told in this country of approximately 200 who've been called to the bar. That's less than 10% continuing to, to practice at the bar, which must say something about the difficult situation they had in terms of competition. Whereas Carrie Morrison speaks about at least half of women who qualified still working as solicitors, feeling it's worthwhile to pay the money to take out a practising certificate. So in terms of focusing on on that point of a solicitor's career, in terms of progress, they may be offered a partnership within the firm they're already working or perhaps set up their own practice. What do we know about the number of early solicitors being offered partnership themselves or indeed creating their own partnerships? This time, I would suggest the solicitor's profession offered great advantages for women in that it offered far greater flexibility to women than the bar did. Women could set up on their own as sole practitioners and, as we've seen, could enter into partnerships with close relatives or solely with other women. But we've seen that Maud Crofts, with her husband, John Cecil Crofts, and her brother, Robert Ingram, set up in a law practice together. So that's two men and one woman. And later, Maud Crofts took on her daughter and her son-in-law, Mary Sykes set up on her own farm, Mary Sykes & Co. Mary Pickup was articled to her husband and eventually became a partner with him. In 1933, one of the first, if not the first, all-woman partnerships was formed by Edith Berthen and Beatrice Honor Davy. Berthen was one of the first ten women solicitors in England and Wales and also the first woman to qualify in Liverpool, this new partnership, which had been set up in the East End, moved to more salubrious premises in Manchester Square, just off Oxford Street, where they trained several other women as solicitors, including a lady called Madge Easton Anderson. In 1920, Anderson had become the first woman to qualify as a solicitor in Scotland, and now, in 1937, she became the first woman to hold qualifications in both jurisdictions. And in terms of looking at the progress at the bar, um, we've talked a bit about how the women solicitors could develop and establish their own practices. For barristers, career progression depends on becoming a senior barrister through trial experiences and being awarded what was then King's, now Queen's Council, and then being appointed to the ranks of the judiciary. Now, significantly in 1937, Anna Chandy of Travnakor in British India becomes the first woman judge in the Anglo-Saxon world. And the picture back home was very different. I think that the 
powers that be in the judiciary and at the bar were waiting for the right kind of woman and Helena Normanton wasn't the right kind of woman because she was older, she had uh, had a career before the bar, she was from the wrong social status and because she had before the passing of the 1919 Act, she'd been very vocal, she'd spoken lots of public debates about opening up the profession to women, she'd been very vociferous in her call for women to enter the bar So I think she wasn't the right kind of woman. So certainly when she's writing to the Lord Chancellor and to the Home Secretary for any kind of judicial position that might be available to her, they're not interested. They're not interested in her at all. They say to her, look in the obituaries notice of the Times and when a judge dies, write to us and apply via that. And so she does do that. She looks in the Times obituaries, she sees a little bit um, sort of uh, dark, isn't it? She looks for people dying and then she sends off a letter and applies to become a judge. But she's rejected each time. Now, Civil Campbell, of course, had become already was a stipendary magistrate. Um, but of course, she came from judiciary stock, as it were. She was from the right social background. Her grandfather had been um, uh, Judge Boville. So... Uh, Helena Normanton just wasn't the right type of woman. She had been too vocal, too vociferous, too difficult in inverted commas that she wasn't the right. She just wasn't the right kind of woman. She was she was never going to be accepted or acceptable. So looking back at this particular decade in terms of the status and progress of women in the legal profession, we've heard from our contributors that it's it's a somewhat complex picture, rather hampered a to some extent by a lack of the records from the women themselves. We do know and we've seen that they've had exceptional academic attainment, family support and inspiration, particularly from from fathers and brothers, has been very important, particularly also ideological motivation. So I'm wondering whether what your thoughts would be about summing up the decade. It's quite difficult when you talk about progress and because actually what does that mean because for Mm -hmm. some of the women that we've spoken about they had very successful careers Mm -hmm. mary sykes appeared in the law list until 1968 she'd Mm -hmm. set up her own firm at the beginning of the 1930s so from her personal point of view she had a successful um, career which she very much enjoyed in terms of numbers there aren't perhaps numbers of women entering the profession in this period that we looking back would like to see and it's quite a difficult um, position to take as a historian to sort of think that there will be a continual um, ongoing um, progress but certainly I think there were positives and negatives during this period. Thank you very much to our contributors Dr Judith Bourne, Katie Broomfield and Elizabeth Cruikshank for their insights today. You can find more information about the stories of women and the law, suggested readings and more resources on the First 100 Years website. You can also get news of our further episodes if you follow us on Twitter at First 100 Years. We do welcome your participation in the project events suggested additions to our timeline or articles. It's also important to note that you can add your own story as a woman in law or if you're inspired by a woman in law yourself via our website under the Digital Museum tab. We'd like to thank Goldman Sachs and Linklaters who have generously supported this podcast series. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.